welcome to the 2007 John Locke Lectures to be given by Robert Stolmaker, uh, who's the Lawrence Rockefeller Professor of Philosophy at MIT and undoubtedly one of the leading philosophers working in the world today. In fact, it strikes me as surprising that we, we didn't get him to give these uh, lectures many years ago, but we can make up for it uh, today. Um, Bob got his uh, PhD from Princeton in 1965, working with Stuart Hampshire and Carl Temple uh, for many years before his uh, move to MIT in 1988. He was a professor at uh, Cornell. In fact, I remember when I first joined the profession in the, the 1980s, um, one of the great incentives to submit an article to the Philosophical Review was that uh, you had a chance of getting comments uh, uh, from from Bob, as we submit to the Philosophical Review and, and get your paper written by Stolmaker. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think he still has the reputation as one of the, um, the, the best um, commentators on other people's work uh, in, the, in the business. Um, of course, what we're here today to, but it's his work. Um, he's the author of Three books, Inquiry, Context and Content, and Ways the World Might Be, and uh, more than 70 articles, which, if you consult Google Scholar, you'll find are mostly massively cited. Um, and his achievement is, is much greater than it seems even quantitatively, because um, he's an extremely concise writer, and it, quite, it often turns out that behind some apparently throwaway remark in one of his papers, there's actually a theorem that he's proved, but he just doesn't want to, to bother the, the reader with the details of the proof. It's very different from me if I've proved it. I think the first article of his that I read was uh, Possible Worlds, um, which came as a, a blessed relief to see someone making the, the right distinctions and having a, a sober attitude and throwing out the, the bathwater but still managing to keep the, the baby. And he's made hugely influential contributions in philosophical logic, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, metaphysics. And they're not just bits and pieces, but uh, the more you, you work through them, the more that you come to understand that they make an integrated picture of thought, language, and their, their place in the, the world. Um, he's also been extremely influential outside philosophy. Um, I mean, linguistics, for example, um, the possible worlds framework that he was first person really to apply to um, natural language conditionals and then seminal 1968 paper, I mean, that's had a, an enormous influence on semantics of natural language, as done by linguists, not simply by philosophers. And probably even more influential in linguistics has been the, the framework for pragmatics that um, he's developed involving the notion of uh, context that evolves over the course of a conversation, 
uh, notion of the common ground between participants in a conversation and the related notion of uh, pragmatic presupposition, which is behind an enormous amount of work in contemporary linguistics. Uh, he's also a well-known figure in the, the more theoretical end of economics. In fact, I think it was a, at a conference um, which most of the participants were economists that I first met, met him, because um, he's made contributions to, to game theory and uh, he's applied the, the notions of common knowledge, mutual belief, and um, so some ideas about conditionals to decision theory and game theory. He's well known in cognitive science for his work on non-monotonic logic. And something that may be less well known is that he's even a contributor to historical theory because his very first article was on events, periods, and institutions in historians' language. And I'm not just saying that because that's the first thing on his bibliography, but because I did actually look at it. Um, <laughs> he's also been an extremely influential teacher and met many of the, the best young philosophers working in America today are, are his students who um, acquire from him some kind of combination of rigour and reasonableness so that they use technicality without being awed by it in a well-judged Way. I, I was briefly his colleague when I was a visiting professor at uh, MIT in 1994. Um, at that time, the, the philosophy, well, the linguistics and philosophy department at MIT was, uh, was housed in a sort of large asbestos shed, uh, which was actually um, intellectually, if not medically, an ideal <laughs> environment for pursuing philosophy because um, it, it made it very hard to, to be pretentious or to, to bluff. The, the, the physical surroundings just uh, were not conducive to that. But even less conducive to that was Bob's presence. So um, I'll, I hope it will be taken as the... the great compliment that it's intended us if I say that he's an even more effective inculcator of philosophical virtue than a large asbestos shed. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of uh, practical uh, There will be some seminar sessions um, in, in uh, relation to these lectures, uh, but those will be in um, weeks five, six, and seven on Fridays at two o'clock in the Royal Room in Ten Merton Street, which you're all welcome to uh, to come. Um, to be well, but I hope you don't hold it. We'll after this lecture we'll have a few questions, but there won't be time for very much. Um, and then uh, the Oxford University Press will be hosting a drinks reception in New College in the Founders Library from 6.30 to 8, which everyone here is um, invited to. Um, but now I should shut up. These lectures, as you can see, they're going to be on our knowledge of the internal world. So let's start in a minute.
Thanks very much, Tim. I doubt very much if I can um, live up to that generous uh, introduction. But it's a tremendous honor uh, and privilege for me to give uh, this lectures in this series that has been preceded by so many of my uh, intellectual heroes, uh, including, among others, uh, Paul Grice, Sidney Shoemaker, Saul Kripke, David Lewis. Some of the works, uh, the work by some of these people will come in for some discussion uh, in these lectures. I've given a couple of uh, lecture series before that were named for distinguished philosophers. One, Alfred North Whitehead, the other, Josiah Royce. And I think with, with Locke, we're coming a little closer to philosophers that I have some hope of understanding. <laughs> Now, one of the uh, John Locke lectures was uh, Barry Stroud, who in the published uh, version, in the introduction to the published version of his, his uh, book that came out of that, The Quest for Reality, said it was very difficult to know in philosophy where one should start. Uh, and he sort of definitely suggested maybe the best place to start was the beginning. But I think he realized that this was not the right answer. You've got to start uh, in the middle, and uh, what I want to talk about today uh, is uh, try to get clearer about exactly what that means. So, uh, let me just uh, start by, by contrasting a couple of different ways of uh, thinking about the philosophical project. The Cartesian uh, picture of the mind and of the world was under attack from a variety of directions through most of the last century. We were taught to do without private objects and private languages, uh, the myth of the given, the ghost in the machine, the Cartesian theater, things present to the mind. So we were told to become materialists, or at least functionalists, we naturalized our epistemology. Instead of trying to build a foundation from the materials we found in our internal worlds, we, uh, we were advised to start in the middle and to observe how people, in fact, went about justifying their beliefs and to explain their knowledge in terms of the way they interact with uh, the things in the world that we, as theorists, find there. But despite all this... Uh, anti-Cartesian uh, thrust in the 20th century, the Cartesian beast is a hydra-headed creature that refuses to be slain and I think continues to color our philosophical pictures and projects. So Wittgenstein, Ryle, Quine, Sellers, Davidson, not to mention Heidegger, may have cut off a few Cartesian heads, but they keep growing back. Now, Descartes is not the bogeyman he once was. Uh, Cartesian skeptical arguments are back in fashion, arguments for the autonomy of minds and mental states, uh, and philosophers feel free again to observe 
and contemplate the inner objects that Wittgenstein tried to banish. Now, the Cartesian target is, of course, broad and diverse, and critics of one aspect of the picture may embrace uh, another. And anti-Cartesians sometimes accuse each other of being closet Cartesians. There's a, a cryptic and jarring remark I ran across in one of Donald Davidson's late papers. Quote, I reject Quine's conception of knowledge, which is Cartesian and first personal. Quine being the paradigm case, the inventor of naturalized epistemology, but uh, I maybe will have a chance to think a little bit about what Davidson could possibly have meant. Anyway, being myself still mired in the philosophical mindset of the 20th century, my discussion uh, of uh, various aspects of our knowledge of the internal world is going to be in the anti-Cartesian tradition. So my subject matter is the part of knowledge that the Cartesian internalist takes to be the most basic and unproblematic knowledge of our own phenomenal uh, experience and thought. But I'm going to approach the subjective point of view, try to, from the outside. And we'll get down to work on the details of some arguments next week and in, in preceding lectures, uh, succeeding lectures, but, um, but what I want to do uh, today is to try to set the context um, by making some sort of big picture remarks about the way I see the contrast between a Cartesian philosophical project and an externalist alternative. Lots of attacks on the myth of the given and so on, but uh, everyone has a somewhat different take on exactly what that comes to. So I'm going to sketch some, some old uh, themes and look at some familiar, um, some familiar uh, patterns of uh, argument. Um, um, and main idea to be to try to bring out some common uh, patterns uh, of argumentative strategy in some of the uh, work that you'll be um, uh, familiar with. So just to outline what I want to do, which is on the, uh, uh, the sort of very minimal handout that, uh, that you have, uh, I'm going to start with uh, some sort of general remarks about the externalist strategy as I understand it. Um, second, I want to talk about four examples of uh, a certain kind of externalist maneuver uh, uh, from, the, uh, from, from the recent, well, some, most of it from the recent philosophical uh, tradition, one starting earlier than that. So first, a look at Hume's skeptical solution to the problem of induction. Second, uh, uh, a Solarzian critique of, of sense uh, contents. Third, Kripke's critique of the description theory of reference. And uh, fourth, David Lewis's response to Putnam's, what he calls Putnam's paradox. And again, in this case, mainly I want to sort of try to see um, some uh, strategies of argument that are recur in some of these uh, different places. And then in conclusion, I'm going to take a look at uh, Bernard Williams' remarks on the absolute conception of reality and what I see as a kind of interplay between um, um, a question about uh, sort of an objective or external way of, of, uh, of thinking about this conception in an internal way. 
Okay, the contrast uh, I have in mind between an external and a more Cartesian approach is a contrast between two kinds of philosophical project rather than two different philosophical theses. Uh, it's a contrast between decisions about where to start, between different assumptions about what's problematic and what's unproblematic, and about how to characterize the central philosophical problems. The Cartesian internalist begins with the contents of his mind, with what he finds by introspecting and reflecting. This is what is unproblematic. These are the things and the facts we know directly. The internalist problem then is, how do we move beyond these to form a conception of an external world? And how are we able to know that the world beyond us answers to the conception that we form? So the externalist, in contrast, proposes that we begin with the world we find ourselves in and with what either common sense or, depending on the particular version of the strategy, the common sense or our best scientific theories tell us about it. Among the things we find in the world are human beings, namely ourselves. And these are things that it seems can know about the world, can experience it, have a point of view on it, um, um, interact with it. Our problem is to explain how our objective conception of the world can be a conception of a world that contains things who are able to think about and experience the world in the way we do. So these contrasting projects will formulate the central philosophical problems about knowledge and the mind in quite different ways. Uh, for the internalist, the central question, say, about intentionality uh, is, is this. How can my representational capacities extend beyond my own mental life? I can take for granted, without explanation, my capacity to represent the contents of my mind and my capacity to reason about what I find there. At this point, there is no problem about the relation between my thought and its subject matter, since they are identical. The problem is to explain how I extend my uh, representational reach beyond this. So the problem is a problem of explaining representational resources for a wider domain in terms of given representational resources for a narrower one. The problem is like the problem then, um, just to relate it to a familiar in the tradition uh, issue, the way of explaining the logical and semantic relations between an observation language and a theoretical language. The externalist sees the problem of intentionality quite differently. We find in the world human beings with certain complex physical structure a certain range of behavioral capacities and causal relations with their environment. What is it about those features, capacities, and relations that makes it correct to describe the internal states and verbal behavior of these creatures in terms, um, uh, in terms of intentional relations to propositions, properties, and individuals? What is it for such complex physical objects to be in states that are about the world and about themselves? Now, internalists and externalists will each complain that the other is taking for granted what needs to be explained. The internalist sees the externalist project as a project motivated by pessimism. Their complaint uh, is this. 
Imagine the internalist complaining here. He says, because you see no hope of reasoning your way out of your internal world, you give up and simply assume that there is a world that answers to your inner conception of it. You just help yourself to some additional material, taking it for granted because you see no other way to make progress. You decide that honest toil is so ill-paid that theft is the only answer. But the externalist rejects this way of understanding their project. It's not, they insist, that we're taking for granted what you take as given and more besides. It's you, we think, who are taking for granted phenomena that are in need of explanation. In our view, we can make sense of your starting point, the internal world, only by locating it in a wider world. The problem, we think, is not that skepticism is unanswerable, from a purely internal point of view, even though it may be true that it is. In fact, we argue that the problem of skepticism seen this way is worse than you think. The problem is rather that skepticism about the external world has as one of its sources an uncritical acceptance and a false conception of our knowledge of the internal world. Now, it will be clear that uh, as we go on that my sympathies are with the externalist in this debate, but my main concern will be to keep clearly in mind what perspective it is that we're taking. Problems about knowledge in the mind have usually been posed in recent times in a way that presupposes uh, the externalist standpoint. But Cartesian and traditional empiricist ideas that presuppose an internalist perspective continue to influence the way we think about these problems. And some of the puzzles about our knowledge of our own experience and thought may arise from equivocating between the internal and external perspectives. Now, the four examples that uh, uh, I want to talk about each deserve considerably more uh, discussion than I'm going to uh, give them. And as I say, my, my aim is, is mainly to sort of see some, um, some um, patterns that recur uh, in the uh, in the different uh, in the dialectic of argument in these in these four different cases. Okay, I'm going to start with uh, a classic example uh, from uh, David Hume, uh, the classical example of a shift from an internal to an external perspective, and this is what Hume called his skeptical solution to his skeptical doubts about induction. The problem of induction is first posed from the perspective of the subject. The problem is how to justify the inferences one makes from one's evidence to hypotheses about the external world or about the future, where the available evidence is restricted to the subject's immediate sense experience. The shift, the, the external shift, once it's established that the problem posed from the internal perspective is insoluble, the shift is to view the subjects who are in this predicament, this skeptical predicament, as objects in the world who are making inferences about it, and to ask how they do it, why they do it as they do, and why it is that they are as successful as they are. The skeptical solution offers a psychological theory that provides, and the sort of general strategy uh, is not tied to the details of the psychological theory, but... Uh, 
um, the general of the project, is to give a psychological theory that provides a descriptive account of the conceptual resources that these creatures, ourselves, use to form beliefs, and a causal explanation of how they acquire and use those resources. But the story, as I um, at least uh, I think one ought to uh, interpret it, um, is not just a descriptive one. We observe not just that these creatures are disposed to behave in certain ways, but that they have a capacity to find their way about reliably in their environment. And our external theory provides an explanation for that capacity, an explanation for the fact that the methods of inference they use to form beliefs are reliable methods. Of course, the proponent of the skeptical solution is using the very methods that he is assessing in arriving at the conclusion that the world is one that is conducive to the success of those methods. But to acknowledge this is just to acknowledge that the skeptical solution is not a solution to the skeptical problem on the internalist's terms. The explanation for the reliability of the inferential methods used by those creatures is still a substantive one, and it is not a foregone conclusion that the procedure will result in a positive assessment. What's required is that the story the externalist tells from the middle of things about what the world is like be one that is in harmony with the hypothesis, of course, uses the word harmony in this context, um, with the hypothesis that he is a creature who is able to tell this story and to have good reason to believe that it is true. Even this requirement may seem to be out of reach if one mixes the internal and the external perspectives in an inappropriate way. So, for example, and here I, I give, and it's on the handout, a kind of parody uh, of Hume's external story, which, um, um, which I take to be what Hume's skeptical solution is not. Okay, so imagine X, uh, the Humean defender of the skeptical solution. There is really no such thing as causation. So the world is like a random sequence of states, but it is a sequence that happens by sheer chance to have exhibited up till now a certain pattern of regularity, and it will continue to do so, still by fortuitous coincidence. So we can be confident that our inductive methods will continue to work. So the internalist skeptic says, but what reason do you have to be so confident that the pattern will continue. And the, and the uh, Humean defender of the skeptical solution answers, I can't give you a reason, but I can give you an explanation for my confidence. I'm a creature of habit, and the regularity of the pattern up till now has irresistibly caused me to expect it to continue. I just can't help having this belief, and it's a good thing too, since I'm convinced that the pattern will, in fact, continue. Now, one might, with good reason, find X's line of argument here not just unsatisfying, but incoherent. I mean, it's a sort of display of the lack of the harmony that's required. Since uh, what, in this parody, what X purports to be doing is giving a causal explanation for a certain belief, while at the same time rejecting the applicability of causal concepts. But the real uh, Humean does not reject causation and emphatically affirms the central role of causal hypotheses in inductive reasoning. What is rejected 
although it's a matter of, uh, requires considerable debate uh, exactly how Hume's account of causation should be understood. But what's rejected, I'm suggesting here, is only a certain theory of causation that, according to the Humean diagnosis, tries to explain a relation between events in terms of a relation necessary connection that applies appropriately only to ideas. The Humean will also reject the conclusion that we can have reason grounded only in what's available from the internal perspective to believe any causal claims. But, one might say, so much the worse for the internal perspective. Now, I have to say that it's me who says so much the worse for the internal perspective and certain interpreters uh, of Hume, but I can't claim that Hume says this. He remains profoundly ambivalent, taking his skepticism as seriously as his naturalism. There's some suggestion in Hume that he thinks it's a weakness that we are unable to stick consistently with the unmitigated skepticism that he argues for. But there's also a suggestion that it's a good thing that we're weak in this way. Okay, second example. Uh, is an issue concerning visible properties and visual experience. On the traditional empiricist picture, idea, uh, ideas of visible properties of color, for example, derive from visual experience, which is then in one way or another, the experience projected onto the world. This picture can be developed in, in various ways, um, giving various different accounts of the nature of, uh, of the properties uh, that colors are. Uh, so, um, um, uh, on, on one uh, view, uh, color is a confused concept that involves attributing to things in the world properties that are really properties of our experience. On another, color is a power or a disposition to cause us to have experiences with, certain, with a certain character, a power that resides in the physical objects that we attribute uh, color properties to. On a third view, colors are whatever the categorical properties are, the possession of which by an object in the vicinity tends to cause the perceiver to have experiences with a given phenomenal character. But what all these theories about color have in common, at least approached in this way, is the assumption that our concepts of color properties are derivative from concepts of certain types of phenomenal experience. On a contrasting externalist view, as developed, uh, for example, by Wilfred Sellers in Empiricism and Philosophy of Mind, the ascribers of color properties begin with a naive view of an objective world, with things in it to which our most basic color concepts are applied. We don't begin with any kind of theory about how we are able to determine the colors of things or about the nature of the color properties that we're, we can see that things have. We just learn how to tell that things are red or green, blue, or yellow. And the ability that we acquire when we do that constitutes our possession of the concepts that we are applying. When we become more critical and self-conscious about the nature of our capacities to detect these properties and of the limitations of those capacities, we theorize 
that our ability is explained by the fact that we are sometimes in certain internal states that tend to correlate with the presence of the property detected. And we also learn that the correlation is not perfect. As a result, we come to distinguish being red from merely looking red. The new, more sophisticated concept of looking to, to one to be red or of their looking to be something red before one applies when one is in the hypothesized internal state, even when the normal correlation fails to hold. Now, on this Solarzian externalist picture of sort of the development of our uh, coming to have color concepts and concepts for phenomenal experience, uh, it's the objective properties or the concepts of them that have conceptual priority. The idea that we can be in internal states corresponding to the colors of things and our concepts of the qualitative character of those internal states are derivative, deriving from a quasi-theoretical hypothesis about our relation to those properties uh, of visible things. But while the concepts of the qualitative properties of our experience are derivative, the, uh, the qualitative properties themselves, the properties of experience, have a kind of explanatory priority. They play an essential role in the explanation of our capacity to detect by looking the colors of things, and an essential role in the causal explanation for our able, or, or being able to acquire the concepts that we are applying when we detect color properties. The internalist's mistake, according to Sellers' diagnosis, was to conflate the two kinds of priority, conceptual and explanatory. And this conflation distorted the epistemic role that something like sense contents played in our perceptual knowledge. Quine makes the same distinction between two explanatory uh, and, and conceptual priority uh, and paints a similar picture most explicitly in the introductory chapter of uh, Word and Object. And this is a quotation from Quine. There's every reason to inquire into the sensory or stimulatory background of ordinary talk of physical things. The mistake comes only in seeking an implicit sub-basement of conceptualization or of language. Our ordinary language of physical things is about as basic as language gets. Okay, third, third example uh, is uh, example of, of uh, Kripke's um, criticisms of descriptivism and more broadly the sort of externalist um, um, uh, conception of, of propositional content, of, of a mental content. The received view of reference that Saul Kripke uh, criticized in naming and necessity has its origin in an internalist picture of representation. And even though at least some of the post-Cartesian, or rather post-Kripkean uh, uh, neo-descriptivists would disclaim any allegiance to a Cartesian project, I think the intuitions from the uh, internalist project, of, uh, going back to Russell and, and Frege, plays a role in motivating defenses of this uh, traditional account of reference. And that it's useful to see the parallel between the Kripkean critique and the kind of externalist project promoted by Sellers and Quine. So reference to individual concrete things such as human beings and physical objects and cities is particularly problematic from an internalist point of view 
since such objects are paradigm cases of things that are not denizens of the internal world. And so they're not things to which we might have direct access from the inside. The descriptivist strategy is to explain the capacity to refer to concrete individuals in terms of a capacity to refer to the properties and relations that are exemplified by those individuals, things that might more plausibly be thought of as internal to the mind, or at least things that the mind could grasp from the inside. Now, of course, Frege was clear that the contents of thought are not themselves mental objects. They are something more abstract that can be objects of thought of different thinkers, the objects of the thoughts of different thinkers. But Frege still seemed to think, uh, seemed to have assumed that the, the contents of speech and thought must be, in some sense, internal to the mind. Frege was famously incredulous at the idea that a physical object like Mount Blanc, with all of its snowfields, uh, might be a constituent of a proposition. Russell disagreed, holding to the view that propositions might indeed have physical objects as components. But in the end, Russell took the bite out of this externalist doctrine by combining it with the view that propositions could be grasped only by someone who is acquainted with all of the constituents of the proposition, where acquaintance required the kind of perfect and complete knowledge that we could have only of mental objects or of universals. There are propositions with Mont Blanc as a component, and we can describe such propositions, but they cannot be the contents of what we think and say when we talk and think about Mont Blanc. So while Frege and Russell had different conceptions of a proposition, if we restrict ourselves to propositions that are candidates for the contents of speech and thought, then both of these founding fathers of the traditional or the received view of reference will agree that singular reference to physical objects must be mediated by general concepts that apply to those physical to those objects. Now, Kripke's externalist critique uh, started, and, and the main much of the focus of the discussion is on the descriptive adequacy of the uh, of the traditional analysis. Uh, so, in some cases, uh, Kripke argued cases that seem intuitively to be examples of successful reference, we don't know enough. We don't have the conceptual resources to refer according to, in a way that accords with a descriptivist account. Um, in other cases, it was argued that the analysis implied the intuitively wrong result, that the thing we were referring to was something other than what intuitively we seem to be referring to. A second part of Kripke's critique argued that even if a, descriptivist, uh, a descriptive analysis were correct, it could not provide a satisfactory account of reference anyway without an explanation of how we are able to refer to or to express the properties and relations that are expressed in the descriptions that constitute the analysis. What's questioned here is the internalist presupposition that our intentional relations to properties and relations are unproblematic. A descriptivist analysis just passes the buck, as David used the term David Lewis used, uh, from one kind of expression to another. This point was uh, supported and uh, reinforced by arguments that Tyler Burge gave against what he called individualism. 
if, uh, if general terms, along with names and other singular referring expressions, depend for their semantic values on environmental conditions, then our intentional relations to them cannot have the kind of foundational status that the internalist project requires. Speakers and thinkers can't have the kind of perfect and complete acquaintance with properties and relations that is necessary, according to the internalist, to grasp the propositions expressed in the descriptive, descriptivist analysis. And so further reduction would be required for the success of the internalist project. Here it's important that the anti-individualist arguments, the kind that Burge gave, apply to a wide range of general concepts, not just to a few natural kind terms and theory-laden scientific terms, but even to purely qualitative predicates. If only a relatively narrow range of terms and concepts are, to use the term of David Chalmers, twin-earthable, they're only subject to twin-earth type experiments uh, to show they depend on the environment, then there might be a prospect of a reduction of the concepts that are in this narrow range to those that are not. But the externalist argues that the phenomena brought out by the anti-individualist thought experiments, Putnam and Burge and so on, as well as by Kripke's arguments, uh, the phenomenon is ubiquitous. There is no foundation. We need an explanation of another kind. And it's at this point that the externalist makes a distinction that, that I see as paralleling the distinction made by Quine and Sellers between conceptual and explanatory priority. Singular reference with proper names is conceptually direct, but that should not be taken to imply that there is no explanatory story to be told about what it is in virtue of which a name refers. Just as it's a mistake to confuse explanatory with conceptual priority in the case of visible properties and visual experience, so it's a mistake, according to the causal theorist of reference, to confuse an explanation for the fact that a name refers as it does with a conceptual analysis of what is expressed by that name. A definite description of an individual named might play an essential role in the explanation for the fact that the name refers to the individual, even if the proposition expressed with the name, the propositions expressed with the name, are determined as a function of the individual itself and not of some concept expressed by the description. Kripke took Frege's notion of sense to involve an equivocation between these two roles of a descriptive concept in the explanation of the relation between a name and a referent. And this, uh, again, controversial uh, quotation from Kripke um, uh, uh, criticizing uh, uh, Frege, a criticism which I leave to the Frege interpreters to uh, judge the justice of, but I think it, it surely applies accurately to some neo-Fregean uh, philosophers. Uh, okay, fourth uh, example I want to just point to is the example of Putnam's paradox and uh, its skeptical uh, solution. Even though uh, David Lewis uh, defended what is, in a sense, an internalist project, uh, he accepted the externalist's formulation of the problem of intentionality. And he argued that any solution to it will require a move 
that parallels the move, that I see as paralleling the move in David Hume's uh, skeptical solution to the problem of induction. Lewis's external shift, like Hume's, is a response to a skeptical problem that's posed from the subject's point of view. The problem is what Lewis calls Putnam's paradox, which is an argument that Hilary Putnam gave first in 1977, but in many other places since. And the rough idea uh, of Putnam's argument is this. Start with the fact that any consistent theory has many interpretations according to which it is true. As Lewis points out, a certain amount of model theory gets brought in, but that's kind of kind of um, unnecessary. The basic point um, could be made more simply. Um, all that needs to be assumed for the result that any consistent theory can be interpreted in such a way as to make all of the sentences in it true. Um, all that one needs is that there are enough things in the world. Nothing need be assumed about what those things are like or what they are. But anyone who is actually asserting or uh, accepting or affirming a theory claims more than that um, there's sentences uh, uh, that they're using express truths on some interpretation or other. They intend a certain interpretation and the claim is that the theory propounded is true on the intended interpretation. What Putnam's skeptical argument challenges is the assumption that this restriction to intended interpretations provides any constraint at all on interpretations. For I might formulate my referential intentions in my public language or in my language of thought and add them to my total theory. The resulting augmented theory, incorporating statements expressing all of my referential intentions, will still be true on many interpretations, no matter what it says, uh, and no matter what the world is like. The point applies quite generally. Suppose there is some condition, and it may need, need restrict it to, to something having to do with intentions. Um, suppose there is some condition C that we, as, that we as theorists might propose as a constraint on admissible interpretations of our language, uh, or if not language on whatever the objects and events are that represent our thoughts on our, our uh, internal states, whatever they are. The, uh, Putnam's argument is that C itself, this condition, whatever it is, could be incorporated into one's theory and the argument then applied, or Putnam's argument applied to the resulting theory. And now, um, quoting uh, Lewis, constraint C is to be imposed. Uh, uh, constraint C is to be imposed by accepting C theory, according to Putnam. But C theory is just more theory, more grist for the mill, and more theory will go the way of all theory. The point, is, unquote, the point is that all that any such constraint can do is to restrict the range of consistent theories that are candidates to represent a subject's corpus of beliefs, but any restricted theory will be still a consistent theory and so still subject to any interpretation to make it true. Um, so the restrictions do not help to constrain the content of the claim that the theory makes about the world. But Lewis's reply is, and this is the external shift, 
C is not to be imposed just by accepting C theory. That is a misunderstanding of what C is. The constraint is not that an intended interpretation must somehow make our account of C come out true. The constraint is that an intended interpretation must conform to C itself. The constraint is imposed not on oneself from within, but on the objects we find in the world who are, in fact, ourselves. Now, like Hume's skeptical solution, this response to Putnam's paradox does not answer the internal skeptic on his own terms. The conclusion of Putnam's argument is that all reference is radically indeterminate, and Lewis's strategy can succeed in responding to, uh, to Putnam uh, only uh, it can succeed in stating a determinate condition uh, for reference only if Putnam's conclusion is false. So the response might be thought to beg the question. Lewis does not take this worry very seriously. Who gave the skeptic the license to set the terms of the debate? But he takes more seriously what he describes as a deeper, quote, a deeper and better reason to say that any proposed constraint is just more theory, unquote. He thinks that it is tempting to believe of whatever theory of reference is correct that, quote, somehow implicitly or explicitly, individually or collectively, we have made this theory of reference true by stipulation or by intention. And he thinks that if this is a tempting belief were accepted, Putnam's conclusion would be unavoidable. Quote, again from Lewis, the main lesson of Putnam's paradox, Lewis writes, is that uh, this uh, purely voluntaristic view of reference leads to disaster, unquote. But I think this is a misleading diagnosis. We don't need Putnam's paradox to see that any general solution to the problem of intentionality, any explanation of the nature of representation, that tries to be purely voluntaristic would be incoherent. An intention is itself an intentional state. One obviously cannot explain what makes an intention, say an intention directed at Osama bin Laden, be an intention that's directed at him an explanation for what makes the intention an intention directed by him by saying that we intend it to be directed to him. A purely voluntaristic or intentionalist theory of reference makes sense only as a theory that aims to explain linguistic reference in terms of, or linguistic intentionality in terms of the intentionality of thought. And a project of this kind, for example, a Gricean uh, project, is uh, is untouched by Putnam's paradox, which is a paradox concerning the general uh, question of the nature of, uh, of intentionality. I think the main lesson of Putnam's argument should instead be put this way. An attempt to give a purely internalist solution to the problem of intentionality leads to disaster. A clear view of the problem requires that we distinguish conceptually between one ourselves as theorists attempting to explain our intentional relations to things in our environment, and two, ourselves as the objects whose relations to things in their environment we are studying. But as in the case of Hume's skeptical solution, our two views of ourselves must be in harmony. A satisfactory account 
of intentionality must explain how it is possible for us as objects in the world to be the kind of thing that can have a theory of the kind that we as theorists have. And that is a theory, and also that's a theory that succeeds in saying things about the world. Okay, so I want to conclude by by looking at uh, what uh, Bernard Williams calls the absolute conception of reality. It's tempting to think of this external standpoint uh, that I've been trying to articulate as a view of reality from outside, or from, some people say sometimes, from above. We retreat into our objective selves, use a term of Tom Nagel's, leaving behind our empirical selves and take on the view from nowhere. This image, uh, the perspectiveless perspective, um, is reinforced by the language of perspective. We talk about the external standpoint. Uh, But uh, in a way, I think, this image gets things exactly backward. It's essential to the view from the middle of things that there is no place from which to observe and reflect on the world other than our place within it. It's essential that the theorist viewing himself as an object in the world is the same as the object being viewed. It's not that we're looking for a platform outside of the world on which to build our conception of it. Instead, we're trying to do without foundations at all. Now, both internalists and externalists are aiming at a conception of a reality that exists independently of our conception and knowledge of it. They differ about whether such a conception can be built from within and perhaps also about what such a conception requires. Uh, Bernard Williams, who was concerned with Descartes' project of generating such a conception, suggested that there is something puzzling and problematic about an absolute conception of reality. And the long quotations um, on the handout, which I'll go over, um, uh, is his articulation of this problem. Suppose A and B each claim to have some knowledge of the world. Each has some beliefs. Each has some beliefs and moreover has experiences of the world and ways of conceptualizing it which have given rise to those beliefs and are expressed in them. Let us call all of this together his representation um, of the world or part of the world. Now, A's and B's representations may well differ. If what they both have is knowledge, that is, both what A and B have is knowledge, that is, they have a correct and knowledgeable uh, representation of the world, then it seems to follow that there must be some coherent way of understanding why those representations differ and how they are related to one another. Um, So pausing the quote here. We need, that is, to understand how the different representations, quote, can each be perspectives on the same reality, unquote. And this requires one to, quote, form a conception of the world which contains A and B and their representations. But this will still be itself a representation involving its own beliefs, conceptualizations, perceptual experiences, and assumptions about the laws of nature. 
If this is knowledge, then we must be able to form the conception once more of how this would be related to some other representation which might equally claim to be knowledge. Indeed, we must be able to form that conception with regard to every other representation which might make that claim. But the idea that there might be uh, such a conception, Williams goes on to argue, poses uh, a dilemma. Okay, so this is, this is the, uh, uh, the dilemma. On the one hand, the absolute conception might be regarded as entirely empty, specified only as whatever it is that those, these representations represent. In this case, it no longer does the work that was expected of it. On the other hand, we might have some determinate picture of what the world is like independent of any knowledge or representation in thought, but then it is open to the reflection once more that that is only one particular representation of it, our own, and that we have no independent point of leverage for raising this into the absolute conception or the absolute representation of reality. Uh, Okay, all these quotations from uh, around the same part of uh, Williams uh, on Descartes' project of pure inquiry. Now, the first step in diffusing this dilemma is to distinguish the content of a representation both from the particular means used to express that conception and from the act of expressing it. The absoluteness we are looking for is in the content. We want a representation of the world as it is in itself, or as Williams puts it, of what is there anyway, and not just of the world as it appears from a certain perspective. Uh, But of course, any representation of the world as it is in itself will use certain means to say that the world is that way, and the saying of it will take place at a certain time and place in the world. Suppose I am A, forming a conception of the world as it is in itself. It is part of the content of my conception that there are conceivers forming conceptions of the world as it is in itself, and that those conceptions are formed from a particular point of view within the world using certain resources. If my conception is correct and reasonably inclusive, then among those conceivers in the world as I conceive it to be, will be someone who is me, A, and someone else, perhaps, who is B. My account will recognize that A and B are conceiving of the world from different perspectives, and will include, and my, account, my uh, uh, account will include an account of how those perspectives differ. But since the particular conceptions being formed by A and B that we are interested in are conceptions of the world as it is in itself, it will not be part of the content of A's conception that it is A who is forming that conception, though it will be part of A's conception that A is, at a certain time and place, forming a conception with that content. It could be that A and B form exactly the same conception of the world as it is in itself, that is, conceptions that have identical content, even though they are, um, they are, uh, um, they are uh, conceptions formed uh, uh, at different places. In this case, there will be distinct acts of conceiving, each a conception formed from a certain point of view, but they will have the same content. 
Now, as William suggests, it may be that the conceptions of A and B are not the same in either form or content, even if both are correct. Both count as knowledge. And the two conceptions may differ even if both are correct representations of the world as it is in itself. Each may tell only a part of the story, or they may, as William suggests, tell the story in different but equivalent ways. We should resist the temptation to think that it detracts from the absoluteness of, a cons- of the content of a representation. Um, that the representation does not present uh, a pure proposition detached from any means of expression. The search for a representation freed from any means of representation will face a dilemma that parallels the one posed by Williams for the absolute conception of reality. So now, paraphrasing, or perhaps parodying uh, Williams, um, what a statement says, the proposition it expresses, must be independent of any linguistic item that expresses it. But here we face a dilemma. Either the pure proposition is entirely empty, specified only as whatever it is that these linguistic items, in Russian, English, or whatever language they're in, express, in this case it no longer does the work that was expected of it. On the other hand, we might have some determinate way of saying what the statement says, but then it is open to the reflection that our characterization of the proposition, once more, is only one linguistic expression of it. And again, we have no independent point of leverage for raising it into a pure proposition. End of paraphrase. Now, uh, I trust that no one will take this dilemma seriously in this bald form. but there are real problems in the vicinity. It's a recurrent problem in all of the attempts to view the philosophical terrain from the middle that we, quote, have no independent point of leverage, unquote. We want to theorize about the relation between representations and their content, but of course we can do so only by using other representations. We need a conceptual distinction between the content of a representation and the vehicle in which the content rides. But there may be more than one way to make uh, that uh, um, distinction, and controversies about how to make it can interact with substantive issues about the subject matter that's represented. Now, in uh, next week, I want to look at, I'm going to start by looking at the case of uh, Frank Jackson's thought experiment about Mary and the knowledge argument, and it's a, it's a, a situation where the, um, where the uh, interaction of the perspective uh, of uh, an individual and uh, our objective or um, um, absolute conception of what, there, what distinctions there are to be made among the possibilities um, uh, of, of the way the world might be in itself. Um, um, uh, come up, and part of my t- uh, aim is to try to get, try to uh, to make explicit some questions about the relationship between perspectives on the world and uh, and our representations of of, uh, of the world as it is uh, in itself. So I'm going to talk something about Mary 
and the knowledge argument in general terms uh, uh, next week. Uh, and then um, the third uh, uh, lecture uh, look at uh, explicitly at, at uh, uh, questions about the relationship between our um, our conception of the world as it is in itself and our conception of the way we locate ourselves in the world, issues about self-locating or essentially indexical or essentially contextual uh, 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 belief, um, and then try to put those together um, in the weeks um, that follow. Okay, thanks. Thank you.